Hello, I'm Geraldine Doog. Good to be with you for the 2013 Boyer Lectures, the ABC's premier lecture series, named in honour of the late Sir Richard Boyer, who was chairman of the ABC. Each year, a prominent Australian is chosen by the ABC board to deliver a sustained set of talks on a theme of importance to the nation. In this 55th year, the board has chosen our Governor-General, Her Excellency the Honourable Quentin Bryce, ACCVO. Fitting that in her final months in high office, Quentin Bryce takes a moment to reflect on an extraordinary life journey. The title of her 2013 series, Back to Grassroots, reflects her deep and personal involvement in the community over many, many years. In her official role of Governor-General, Quentin Bryce has met a multitude of Australians in so many different walks of life, each with their own stories of courage, toil, triumph and loss. And as you'll hear, each story leaving a very deep impression. Now, although we've come to know her in a rather formal way, her inspiration comes from everyday Australians, especially her drive for a better world, starting with the lives of women and children. Today's lecture is titled, Watching the Women. Fellow Australians, when I joined you last, I talked about how widespread local activism around the world elevated the women's movement to international stature. International Women's Year in 1975, the UN Decade for Women that followed, the UN Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, adopted in 1981, and the expert committee, CEDAW, established to oversee its observance. In 1993, 45 years after the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and eight years after CEDAW began, the UN World Conference on Human Rights was held. Through CEDAW, local movements from around the world had brought the stories of women's inequality, oppression and abuse to the United Nations. They advocated protection of women's dignity and freedom. They asked that women's rights be recognised as human rights, and they succeeded. The sanctioning of human rights by state legislation or international convention is enormously significant in bringing about social reform. These were the means by which campaigners through the 1960s to 80s eventually achieved formal recognition of gender equality and non-discrimination. As important are the steps that follow on the ground in the lives of those affected and for whom protection is afforded. Human rights recognition, practice and social reform must function cooperatively to respond to the changing needs and circumstances of the human lives at their centre. CEDAW's work relied on nations accurately reporting on progress and difficulties in applying their agendas for policy and legislative change. The 23-member committee, then all women except for one, represented expertise in women's rights across public, professional and community life. Their cultural and ideological backgrounds were diverse. Their views were certainly not always at one. However, 
they shared a commitment to the capacity of the Women's Convention to lead real change in women's lives. Their agency allowed women's stories to be heard. Too many of those stories were of violence against women, intimate partner violence, rape and sexual violence in war, trafficking, prostitution, sex tourism, sexual harassment, abuse of women prisoners, genital mutilation, honour killings, acid attacks, dowry deaths, pornography. For too many of the victims, their stories had never been told. Yet their stories were all they had within their power to use. Presented with such cogent evidence, the committee set about to ensure that violence against women became a human rights issue. They did this notwithstanding that the Women's Convention made no mention of it. They argued that gender-based violence is a violation of human rights that threatens the right to life, dignity, equality, liberty and security. In the lead-up to the 1993 World Conference on Human Rights, thousands of hearings were held with women around the world. The testimony made visible their shocking and widespread abuse. These women were no longer immobilised victims. They had become empowered and active campaigners for change. Critically, a consensus of nations formally declared that the human rights of women and of the girl child are an inalienable, integral and indivisible part of universal human rights. Thereafter, a procedure was established for individuals and groups to complain to CEDAW of rights violations under the Women's Convention. Where there's evidence pointing to a breach, CEDAW only has the power to ask questions of a nation and a limited power at that. Two steps forward, one step back. By the end of 1993, the UN had adopted the Declaration on the Elimination of Violence Against Women. A year later, at the UN World Conference on Women in Beijing, Hillary Clinton delivered her famous and rousing message to thousands. These abuses have continued because for too long the history of women has been a history of silence. Let it be that human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights once and for all. Let us not forget that among those rights are the right to speak freely and the right to be heard. It was an extraordinary feat of international cooperation. But we shouldn't forget that it was only 20 years ago. Only 20 years since nations around the world agreed that something so abhorrent should be recognised as a human rights issue. The global ambition may exist to eliminate violence against women, but we know that it persists at appalling rates. No nation is spared the disgrace, including our own. Just under one-third of Australian women have experienced physical assault and nearly one in five sexual assault. A woman is killed almost every week in Australia by a current or former male partner. For Indigenous women, 
the incidence of sexual violence is three times higher. And despite representing just over 2% of the Australian population, Indigenous women account for 15% of national homicide victims. Wherever I go around our country, the rape crisis centres and women's safe houses are full. Resources are overstretched and countless more women are awaiting refuge from horrific circumstances. Worldwide, one in four women is physically or sexually assaulted while pregnant, and each year around 10 million girls are forced into underage marriage. In rural northern Nigeria, 25% of girls are married off before they turn 15, then immediately pressured to conceive. Girl children are giving birth very often with deadly consequences to themselves and their babies. In a Bangladeshi village, women are enslaved by moneylenders who, in return for loans of less than a dollar, have the exclusive right to buy all she produces at the price he decides. When I met with the Executive Director of the UN Population Fund in New York this year, he told me categorically that violence against women is on the rise, that the progress of women and children marginalised by poverty is stalling. And so, the narratives that bear witness to this suffering deepen and darken. We must be outraged and moved by these facts. We must keep on insisting that these and other stories of human rights violation be heard and faithfully retold. We must reimagine the local, national and global settings for human rights practice. Access to a computer and internet connection can provide the marginalised and silenced with an outlet to speak truth to power to participate in civic life. Increasingly, our capacity for circulation and activism is enhanced. With this clout comes a strong caution that as stories are dispersed, co-opted and reinterpreted, their meaning in the lives of their narrators risks corruption, even erasure. The mechanisms of storytelling aren't perfect, but they are hopeful and I think that they are our best hope of building a more inclusive and a more responsible citizenship. The human rights regime provides a forum for individuals and their communities to make sense of their suffering and survival and to seek due recognition and redress. Storytelling is in all of us. It is a natural human response to the experience of living and witnessing it's how we talk to one another. It's how we feel like we belong to something bigger and wiser than ourselves. It is instinctive and powerful and foolishly underrated. As the women who testified to their own abuse discovered, stories can dramatically shift attitudes and international conventions. They immerse and transport us. The act of telling assuages fear and begins healing. Stories identify us and make sense of who we are. They show us ideas in human action. 
They inspire us to change and to want to change. They connect us and they hold us accountable to one another. They are our common sense. A few thousand years ago, Plato told us that those who tell the stories rule society. American scholars conducted a survey in the early 90s of public political discourse, speeches, debates, interviews, congressional hearings. They wanted to find out if there is a feminine style of speaking, a style that reflects women's lived experience, not their biology, and yet one that's used by both men and women in their public discourse. One of the five characteristics identified was basing political judgments on concrete lived experience. The researchers attributed this feature to the movement of women and their issues from the private to the public sphere and cited as evidence the public discourse around violence against women. Storytelling. Serious, purposeful storytelling, compelled by women's circumstances and deployed as their only viable means to seek help and change. A later US study looked at how a number of women in significant leadership positions perceived and talked about their own leadership. Women leaders telling their leadership stories. The collective narrative that emerged was a form of leadership shaped by ethical principles, not organisational dictates. The women spoke of parents as early role models, the importance of doing good for others, giving back to their communities, the value of listening, open communication and caring for employees. An ethic of care that emphasises collaboration, community and means of influence, that are firmly grounded in concrete lived experience. There is a risk when talking about leadership practices that labels such as feminine and ethic of care misrepresent or somehow diminish the substance they describe. I believe that they are more truthfully described as responsibility, competence and mutuality. In these terms, we do away with the loaded connotation of gender and recognise narrative practice as a potential model of leadership occupying and deserving to occupy the mainstream. It is an exercise of power not merely something women do when they have no power. Westpac Bank CEO Gail Kelly calls it soft wiring. Despite the expression's hint of frailty, I'll go with it. Soft wiring, Kelly says, is the storytelling, the role modelling, the recognition systems, the cultural interventions, the calling out of behaviours and subtle biases, the elephants in the room. I would call that the ungendered human dimension of the business. Whereas hardwiring includes the policy, structures, measures and targets, the scaffolding around which the business grows. 
US President Barack Obama's personal narrative that preceded his rise to power positioned him as a leader of hope and ideas. It suggests a template for the reconciliation of conflict through conversation. A pragmatic style of governance that reveals a commitment to conversation, sensitivity to difference and belief in action. These are the reluctantly called feminine aspects of leadership practised by men and women leaders in every layer of civic life around the world. The University of Sydney's Global Executive MBA teaches storytelling as part of its leadership training. There's a startling disconnect, however, between what women have to offer and what is widely recognised in women as valuable. The reality continues that women do not have, nor are they acknowledged as having, a quality of power and rights with men. How much we are missing out on. The necessity remains for grassroots movements, parliamentarians, corporate and community leaders to address this imbalance and the suffering, denigration and lost opportunity it entrenches. If we can appropriate personal narratives, storytelling, conversation and discourse, not only for their content, but as powerful pragmatic acts of leadership, there is some prospect of achieving the kind of leadership that Australian Noel Pearson hopes for. Mr Pearson says, Leadership is about connecting ideals with reality, finding the optimum meeting points for prudence and risk, perseverance and flexibility, belief and humility, competence and ability to make good from mistakes. Across my life... I've been inspired by women's work and women's leadership. In too many circumstances, they are women experiencing the reality of oppression and exclusion in ways incomprehensible to us. Women who are nonetheless driven by ideals of a better life for themselves and their families. Here are some facts we've heard repeatedly for a long time. The shame is that they haven't altered. Women still produce half the world's food and are still the primary caregivers to children and the elderly. They earn 10% of the world's income, own less than 1% of the world's property and represent 70% of the 2.5 billion people living on less than $2 a day. They also represent... 70% of the world's microfinance clients. Investing in women is no accident. Microfinanciers and members of the global leadership platform, Business Call to Action, have proven the business case. Expanding women's economic opportunities through income generation and entrepreneurship leads to improvements in child health, education and agricultural productivity. It yields high returns for households and communities. Women simply cannot be ignored. We are too vital to the economy and social capital. Everywhere I go, I meet with women in their communities. They generously give their time 
to explain the problems they face and the way they are tackling them. As the first woman foreign dignitary to address their national parliament, I witnessed the palpable hope of the women of Solomon Islands for the first among them to take up a parliamentary seat. The civil and community women leaders of Papua New Guinea, who with me came together for the first time, and the three parliamentarians among them, who were quick to agree that three is not enough. The women I spoke with at the Vanuatu Women's Centre, who were confronting violence by making men part of the solution. When I visited South Korea for the inauguration of First Woman President Park, the inescapable irony of the women entrepreneurs, academics and inventors who told me they couldn't get a bank loan without their husband's backing. The Kuwaiti women who hold serious positions and told me they are invisible amongst men. The Sudanese women in Adelaide whom I wasn't able to talk to until I found them in the kitchen well away from the men. On my third visit, to Afghanistan, the Afghani women who spoke to me at the local school. They found their voices only when the men left the room and I could sense their fear for their young daughters' futures. Near the Syrian border, the mothers I visited in the Zartari refugee camp, set up and run by Australian Andrew Harper, who this year was awarded the Anzac Peace Prize. I sat with these women in their tent on dusty rugs amongst the pebbles, toddlers adrift in nappies and bare feet and howling gusts that tore at their canvas shelters. They described the sense of utter desperation they felt for themselves and their children. They asked me, why don't we matter? The Aboriginal women at Fitzroy Crossing in remote cattle country way up there in northwest Australia who talked to me about healing and restoring a community racked by the effects of fetal alcohol syndrome. And the Puyo women leaders of Cape York's Lockhart River who took me into their learning circle to sit with elders and listen to their stories and their problem solving. Tragically and triumphantly, these women's stories are universal. The sense of commonality and confidence that comes from their storytelling is profound and capable of altering the course of human lives. How important it is for these women to gather in spaces where they feel safe, free to talk and learn from one another and organise to make better things happen. Early in my term... I visited the Aboriginal women elders of Papunya, the Papunya artists. They performed a dance for me, the honey ant dance, a first, in fact, in deference to my being the first woman in my role. They honoured me with a ceremonial stick that signifies the story of the land. Afterwards, we talked about our grandchildren, about women and health about breastfeeding, schooling, their art centre and the opportunities for people at Papunya. The essence of all that I've spoken about here seemed to be captured in that honest and beautiful moment as we sat cross-legged on the ground looking out at the hazing red dust. 
We must try to seek out those moments and images of aspiration and hope to nourish our will to change the reality. The Papunya and Puya women, all those women I've mentioned, and so many more, build their unity and resolve through the stories they share. The stories of the experiences that have meaning to them create a sense of who they are as a group, where they ought to be heading, and the action they need to take. There is another intersection here between the model of leadership I have described and a form of citizenship or social contract that arises by virtue of belonging to a group, a community, or a nation. The privilege of membership calls up a duty to give back, to help shape its story. Our storytelling is our unique kind of advocacy as a citizen, how we voice our ideas and concerns to the group and how we engage one another around ideals and around action. Aristotle saw citizenship as active engagement in the political life of the community, sharing in the administration of justice. A natural assembly of citizens seeking not only to avoid injustice, but to live and behave well. If we can see how the attributes and actions of good leadership and good citizenship are intrinsically connected, then I think we can also see human rights in similar proximity. Their principles are the ideals that nourish our will to act against oppression and in the interests of human dignity and freedom. Their practices are both the pragmatic reality of what is achievable and the means by which leadership and citizenship are exercised. The notions I've suggested of leadership, citizenship and human rights and the way they overlap and interact offer us a lens for observing Australians in our lives and in our work. As Governor-General, I've been privileged to meet a great many of them here and overseas. And when I join you next, I'll share some of the stories of courage, compassion and resilience that characterise so much of our Australian lived experience. I'll talk about the notions of neighbourhood, leadership and citizenship, how these ideas are demonstrated through human stories, through the efforts in our community sector to tackle disadvantage, through philanthropy in all its changing forms, and through the mechanisms of our formal human rights structures to address domestic and international injustice and discrimination. And how, if we can appreciate the intrinsic connections between these layers, we have the capacity for influence and change well beyond ourselves. Her Excellency the Honourable Quentin Bryce, Governor-General of the Commonwealth of Australia, with Watching the Women. It's the second in her Boyer Lecture Series, and we look forward to next week's On the Power of Storytelling to Affect Real and Lasting Change. Australians at their best. It's Lecture 3 at this time next week, and she's seen plenty of it. Of course, you can hear the lectures again after they've gone to air simply by visiting the Boyer Lectures webpage, first stop RN, 
Then follow the trail to the Boyers page, abc.net.au slash rn. You can listen again or you can download your own copy to catch up with later. And by the way, ABC Books will publish the full text of the 2013 Boyer Lecture Series in early December this year. The paperback edition will be available through ABC shops, centres and online. An e-book edition will also be available. All proceeds will go to charity, and that is the wish of the Governor-General. I'm very glad to have had your company today. I'm Geraldine Duke.